Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Trans Regret Snoopy Presents the Bible. I've got a very special guest with me today. Jeff Kane is here to speak with me about Doubting Thomas in John 20, verses 24 through 29. Welcome, Jeff. Hello. Thank you for having me on. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm, I'm so glad we connected. Um, you brought this passage up as a possibility to talk about, and I'm glad you did. I've been doing a lot of uh, reading in John myself lately, and actually did a solo episode about one of the other instances where Thomas says something in John uh, 14. So this kind of, uh, it's in lockstep with that, so I think it worked out really well. Yeah, is that the story of going to see Lazarus then? No, no, it's the... Um, it's the the way I think it might be right around that. I think the Lazarus is John eleven. The, uh, Fourteen is um, where Jesus says, "I'm the way, the truth, and the life," and and Jesus says something along the lines of like, "You'll know the way that I'm going." And Thomas goes, "What are you talking about? I don't even know where oh, you're going." Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's That's uh, right. okay. It's a very interesting character in 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 scripture in general, and also in that uh, that uh, Gnostic, the Gospel of Thomas, has some pretty interesting stuff in it too but um it's not somebody that we hear from very much right yeah because he he kind of only has three lines of dialogue right i guess maybe he has a couple in in the end of john um and then he has just like two other things the the thing you just mentioned and then the line about um going to see lazarus when he says oh let, let's go so we can die with him right something like that <laughs> yeah and it almost feels like He's not there. It's not like uh, like comedic relief or anything like that, but he is there. He has this sort of um, this sort of uh, disengaged voice a little bit. Like he has this sort of skeptical voice about him. So I can see where people would nickname him Doubting Thomas. I think it's a little bit unfair, right? Because that's mm -hmm. not really where he goes. Uh, in the end, he, he, he seems to pretty much fall in line and, and has a very decisive statement at the end of John or the first ending of John um, where he, you know, he claim he makes an, an absolute and a total, you know, claim of the, the deity of Jesus. But, um, but yeah, he, uh, he has sort of an unusual, an unusual presence as as a disciple now what uh, what about this passage intrigued you what made you want to talk about it so it's it's the story i've i've been familiar with it my whole life right because i was i was born and raised christian and i always just sort of accepted it as just a part of the traditional gospel story right that's just a part of the the end of the story the post-resurrection appearances um and I guess for, for me, as someone who's been uh, a bit of a doubting Thomas myself, I've been um, struggling with my faith. I don't currently consider myself a Christian or a believer anymore. And a big part of that was just the lack of physical evidence, um, like never having seen any kind of miraculous healing or, or a prayer being answered in a way that couldn't be um, sort of explained in some 
non-miraculous way, I suppose. Mm, yeah. So, so it's something I, I've been thinking about of like, what, what is the deal as I've been wrestling with the stuff of like, if God exists and he wants us to have a relationship with us, why doesn't he make himself more clear, right? The problem of divine hiddenness as some people call it. Mm -hmm. And I would, I think about different passages in the Bible where um, Jesus himself sort of discourages people from, from asking for physical proof. I, I think about, um, I think it's in Matthew. Jesus says, um, you ask for a sign, but none will be given. Only a wicked and adulterous generation will ask for a sign. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think. Okay, so it sounds like you're not wanting me to ask. Okay, yeah. good to know. And of course, the the story of doubting Thomas. Um, Jesus humors him, right? He he appears before him and gives him that evidence that that Thomas is demanding. But the last line that Jesus leaves Thomas with it is a little bit eerie for me in the sense of he says that it's okay that you needed evidence. The, the line itself is you, you believe because you have seen blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Right. Mm -hmm. So basically saying like, it's okay, no big deal. I'll show you the wounds so you can be satisfied. But just so you know, it would have been better. You would have been a better Christian if you didn't need to see this physical evidence. Um, and that's something that, as, again, as, as I've been uh, wrestling with, with whether or not I believe in this stuff personally, it's something I've thought about and I've thought like, am I willing to take that trade? And where I'm at right now is like, yeah, okay, I'll be like Thomas and I'll say like, that's fine. I'll be considered a lesser believer if I can just have some piece of tangible evidence. I'm willing to trade in um, going down a notch in in the hierarchy of blessedness yeah. for the sake of <laughs> of some physical proof, so so that I can actually believe. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it's like there is definitely it's a well established sort of Christian belief that there is a hierarchy of um, of people in the afterlife. That some people, you know, despite whoever will wind up going to heaven or you know be a, a part of the kingdom of God in eternity rather than being cast into the lake of fire or annihilated permanently or whatever your belief in that regard is mm -hmm. that like some people are elevated and seated right at the, you know, the side of Jesus. Uh, and, and some people actually like in, in script, in, in the gospels ask Jesus specifically for this position and he kind of chastises them for it. And says like, that's not what you need to be worried about right now. But yeah. it, it does kind of, it does kind of bring to mind that like Jesus is saying in this passage, well, here, you know, here, do it, you know, like, go ahead. But just so you know, it's better to not need proof. It's better to just believe. Um, maybe we should just dive right in. Um, you gave folks a little bit of background about yourself already, which is usually what I, I lead in with. But um, was there anything else uh, with regards to faith in your background that you feel like would be a pertinent piece of information to, to talk about at the outset before we just dive right into Scripture? Uh, boy, boy, I don't know. I mean, there's, it's kind of a long story because it's my whole life, but I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I think just the <laughs> the general sense of it is was born and raised a Christian, lived in kind of conservative evangelical land for for 
just my young life, I guess, like through childhood and into young adulthood. And then kind of became a little bit more of a liberal Christian who found more um, progressive interpretations of, of the gospels and scripture in general later in life. And like I said, now where I'm at now is I feel like I'm, I'm doubting Thomas in the part of the story before Jesus comes and reveals himself. So (laughs) I'm currently um, still waiting for a reason to believe some kind of evidence that is undeniable. Yeah. I mean, I think there are a lot of people that are kind of uh, waiting for the wound to touch, right? Mm -hmm. Like if not that, then like waiting to see uh, a leper cured in front of them or something like that. And I, I understand it. Because, like, the world we live in now is so far removed from everything that was happening then, right? The, not just chronologically, but, like, every bit of our way of life is different. Um, and the urgency with which the Gospels and the Epistles were written shortly thereafter implied a sort of, like, immediacy to this sort of second coming, the return of Jesus and the judgment and all this— and, you know, there are different interpretations with what things like Revelation meant and, and whatnot. But there there was this immediacy to it that every year, every day and every year and every hundred years and every thousand years that goes by since that happened, it becomes harder and harder and harder to engage with this uh, faith background and not try to create it in, like, create a new version of it or turn it into something else um, or... or um, solidify it in an earthly thing like money or power or whatever that that doesn't really jive with what the message of uh of the scripture originally says um so it's totally understandable and i'm i'm sorry i'm i have this terrible habit of asking unanswerable questions or questions that are (laughs) like gonna take way way too long to answer so i think you summed it up very well and i appreciate you humoring me there so um when you were doing some some reading in advance for this, what you told me that you were doing, what was the the translation of the Bible that you were reading? Um, so I was reading NLT. That's that's been my go to translation recently. Um, though I let's see, I, I think I checked some other ones to find the more clean uh, quote from Jesus of "Blessed are those who have not seen." Mm. Let me pull this up here, because in NLT, he says, you believe me because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. So I guess he still says that that fancy word of blessed. But um, I don't I always remembered the more classical quote of blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Um, which, yeah, which appears in in other translations, I suppose. I think it's um. It's interesting that that phrase "blessed are" and when we see that um, back in the Beatitudes and, and in a bunch of other places mm-hmm. where Jesus talks, is that the way that that phrase was translated is not really all that true to the original Greek uh, writing of that phrase. Um, there are very very different versions of it floating around, right? Um, but the one that I th- that I saw as being sort of the closest to the meaning that I could find was unsurprisingly because i use this all the time on the show is the david bentley hart new testament um how blissful those who do not see and who have faith 
uh, how blissful, and, and I think N.T. Wright, who's another great New Testament scholar, his version of it says, God's blessing on people who don't see and yet believe. There was another translation I read that said, happy are those who uh, do not see and yet believe. It's weird to say blessed are because it implies that, it, it almost implies like an exclusivity, right? It almost says that like, you're blessed if you do this, but if you don't, then you're not. And therefore like God, God looks down on you or something. Like you're in the special camp or you have, <laughs> yeah, you have some kind of extra level of blessing that that those who who saw me physically uh, do not have access to. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting when you said the David Bentley Hart translation uses the word blissful, and yeah. I immediately thought of the quote, um, ignorance is bliss. You know, not, that that, <laughs> not that that came from, not that that quote has been around as long as, as the Gospels no. have. So I don't think so. No, no, but it, uh, uh, maybe, it kind of fits actually. perfectly there, right? People who <laughs> can just like blissfully choose to um, to believe um, in their ignorance, which I know is, is a completely condo- condescending way of saying that, but that's where I mean, my mind Im- immediately went. Maybe that's where that phrase came from. I mean, who knows? Yeah. But it, it is like it's a different meaning to say it, you are blissful in your – you're blissful when you can still believe even if you haven't seen – or if you can believe in the face of something that that or you know despite something that you've seen um it does it does imply that uh that oh you know that there is sort of like this oh i don't care i'm i'm too happy to i'm too happy believing in what i believe to be convinced otherwise um you know it would be great if i did see but right now this is this is what i believe but it, saying blissful or saying happy, like one of the modern translations that I was reading said, almost makes it seem um, like more of an individual stance, like an, a more of an individual point in one's feeling and one's faith, as opposed to your place within the church and your place in God's judgment or God's eyes. And I think those two things have very, very different meanings. Yeah. It, it also makes me think of um, Jesus oftentimes says that it's it's good to be like a child to have this childlike faith which also um connotates well with the the word blissful the idea of of just being happy and unquestioning in your acceptance of things Mm -hmm. um which again like jesus suggests many times that that's very virtuous to be childlike in that way you know, I think when I was when I was an atheist in in my younger years, um, particularly like in my teens and early twenties, when I thought I knew everything and and uh, nothing was up for debate because there was science and science explained everything. And and while I still think science is absolutely valuable, and and this is not my 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 point that I'm trying to make, um, it did feel to me like that attitude of Christians was uh was a really slippery slope towards people um buying into toxic culture um allowing themselves to be manipulated by people with um, bad uh, motivations and and allowing people to twist uh twist notions of you know blessedness or sanctification in the name of uh you know gaining power gaining wealth or whatever it felt to me like if if what you're doing in the scripture here is trying to convince people not to 
not to think critically, then you're you're just trying to dumb people down, right? And I don't want to be dumb. I want to know. But I, I think that that's not necessary. That it's an easy criticism to lob at that kind of attitude, right? Mm-hmm. But it's not necessarily, I don't think, what's being said. It seems to me like because Thomas is mode in in what little he says in the in the gospel of john his mode seems to be one that's inquisitive and questioning and asking it doesn't seem to necessarily be a bad thing that he wants to think critically although it does feel like sometimes jesus has to like laugh it off other other apostles do this too it wasn't just it wasn't just thomas yeah i I mean i agree like like i said before it seems like jesus is compassionate and and non-judgmental to a point of of offering his wounds um, to Thomas so that he can he can have that evidence that he's asking for. Yeah, I um, maybe we should just should we just start from the beginning? Read kind of go verse by verse. Sure. Yeah. Um, because there were a couple of things I think some context with Thomas that I think are worth pointing out. Um, we we touched on where else Thomas talks and what else the kind of tone that he speaks with. But the name itself is something that I think is more of a mystery than a lot of people know about. Thomas here, who is referred to as the twin, is um, this is an interesting bit of like a translation choice. We'll start it at, at uh, 24. I think I'll just read 24 and 25 if that's all right. Yeah. Um, I'm in the New King James for this one because it has room for notes in the margin. Uh, usually I use my ESV. Uh, but this is just what I landed on and obviously took a little bit out of the David Bentley heart as well. Okay, great. Now, Thomas called the twin, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So Thomas being called the twin is actually a reference to the name that they're using for him. Uh, Thomas or Didymus, which is I think the, the root of what we say as Thomas has like a Greek root in the word in the word twin, like there's it's literally like his name is twin. Um, what did you make of that? Yeah, it's it's a thing that I've I've heard a bunch of times when people read this story in church and stuff, and they just you know they just read it and keep on going. It's kind of like what well, some people just have two names apparently. Like Simon is also Peter and. Um, <laughs> Saul becomes Paul. I guess those, that's a different case because that's a, a case of them changing their name to reflect a, a lifestyle choice. Sure, sure. Um, but anyway, it's just one of those. I don't know. I, I always took it as just one of those biblical quirks of like, oh, yeah, this guy, he's got a nickname. We all know his nickname. Thomas the Twin, right? <laughs> Thomas the Twin. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, so I don't, I don't have any. I'm sure there's all kinds of um, crazy fan theories out there right of like where is where is thomas's brother was he one of the disciples or is he off doing his own thing do you have some insight on this i was so curious about this so i had to i had to look up a few theories on it and some one of the theories implies that he was a twin like one of two twins and that's how Mm -hmm. they just called him twin also the root of the name didymus being twin and thomas being related to didymus like that's just like i guess an easy connection or something there is a a wild and and I don't think entirely uh, uh, a, you know able to be proved theory that uh, Thomas was actually the twin brother of Jesus. Now that one is far out there. That one I, I have no other backup information about. Um, we do know that Jesus had brothers, and it's implied there. But. Sure, but that <laughs> that makes the Christmas story just so mysterious. Then of there was this secret baby that. <laughs> 
that no one cares about. <laughs> right, right, exactly. When the shepherds and the wise men show up, it's like, we've come to see the child. No, not that one. Forget that one. No, not the, one. no that's the fraternal twin. The other, Okay, they're actually two different dads. It's very confusing. Um, so mm-hmm. other than that really wild one, um, there was uh, there is a theory that Thomas's actual name is Judas, and to distinguish him from Judas, he had the same name. They just called him something else, and twin was to their way of recognizing that it's like you have the same name as somebody else. That one also feels a little weird to me, because you know, yeah, because isn't there? There's also there's another Judas in the Bible, right? Because I know there's that line of now Judas, not not Judas, the one not who betrayed him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, which you know bummer for that guy who always has to distinguish himself yeah by the way (laughs) i think that that theory that his name was actually judas was pulling from that line as well saying that's actually the thomas that we hear about oh i see it's it's one and the same which is again a lot of these things are impossible to prove we only have the text we have and and the church has gone through a lot of scripture canonizing and uncanonizing a lot of things to get to a point where this is all that people are willing to accept as authentic scripture now whether that was the right choice is another question and another conversation for another time but really we just have what we have so we have to either think of these things and go wow what a wild theory or what a funny thing to think about or um or just kind of come up with our own opinions about it. i don't think any of any of these theories are like heresies or damnable uh blasphemy or anything like that Oh yeah, yeah, sure. Hope not. The other, the other theory, which actually seemed like it might make sense to me, is that he bore a striking resemblance to somebody else. Because mm-hmm. there was like, a, I think there's a reference to, uh, I'm trying to remember one of the, one of the Johns uh, that were the apostle. One of them was like known as the taller one or something like that. I can't remember exactly, but there was another distinction where they had to kind of tell the difference between two people who shared the same name. I mean, maybe that has something to do with it too. I think that the easiest way to explain it though, is that he was a twin. Yeah. Because he, there's, there's two Jameses among the apostles, right? It's James. Yeah. Not John. Yeah. Yeah. And there are multiple Marys, of course. There's at least three that we know of, right? With Mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, and the other Mary. Yeah, Mary of Bethany, I think. Oh, and, right, and of course, uh, Mary Mary and Martha, um, who could be one of the, the Marys at the tomb, right? Could, it could have been. Yeah, could have been. Mm-hmm. And, and James, it's interesting you bring up James, because James was also speculated to be a brother of Jesus, not the twin brother, obviously. Again, not bringing up as many questions. <laughs> right. But, um, you know, it's sort of an accepted theory, or at least one that, that people don't fight too hard against, that James was the brother of Jesus. Although brother uh, was one of those words, like in the modern church, when people use brother and they use it so much, and it's kind of embarrassing and cringe-inducing to hear people call each other brother so much, but they use that phrase as like a sign of kinship, fraternity, uh, of one that's like, we're all a big family, right? It's not necessarily saying that, that James was the actual brother of Jesus. I'm willing to accept that as James James being the brother of Jesus. So I don't see any reason not to. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, I suppose that would be, that could be controversial if you want to believe that Mary was a perpetual virgin, right? Because that would mean she didn't have any other um, sons or daughters because that would um, not be um, <laughs> divinely 
uh, induced what's the uh, word no, divinely conceived yeah i forgot that doctrine yeah sorry sorry catholics i i apologize uh <laughs> <laughs> and not all catholics i don't even think maybe i'm not sure anyway i won't dig the Hashtag hole any deeper not all catholics. <laughs> <laughs> um okay so I'll, I'll continue the end of 25 here uh and then we'll we'll keep reading so he said to them he being uh thomas Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. That's kind of weird for him to say. It struck me as very strange. Like, I wouldn't, I don't, I don't believe you and I don't believe you so much that I, he would have to be standing here in front of me and I would have to place my, my extremities into his wounds yeah in order to in order to. very specific with his demands yeah. um, saying like what what kind of proof do you want i've got i know exactly what i need i need to touch those wounds <laughs> which i suppose i the way i interpret this passage is that they they probably had a longer conversation right and the the gospel is just sort of condensing it down to you know maybe they argued for like 45 minutes and then this is where they ended it was thomas saying okay this is what it would take to convince me this is what i want to see yeah, it, it seems odd that that's what it would take for him because, and, and again, they don't go over it and what they're saying and what kind of conversation they had about it. But it does seem odd that, you know, none of the other people that were present or saw Jesus already were like, dude, I was there, okay? Like, I saw him or I was there. The the tomb was empty. This You know, the stone was rolled aside. You know, every every other detail they could have gone over, there was no back and forth in conversation about this. They just, he just goes straight to like, no, look, this is what I have to have. Which did, did Jesus reveal his wounds specifically when he appeared? to the other disciples i'm trying to remember because that that's kind of an interesting thing too or just theologically it's an interesting thing the fact that when jesus is resurrected he still has the wounds and the importance of that and then i you guess know, another question of how how would thomas know that he would still have the wounds or why would he be asking for that see and that's a really good question too in in um the section right above so 19 through 23 it implies that in john at least that he sh that he shows them oh yeah the ones. i've seen but, that now mm -hmm. but I, I don't know about the other gospel it's very possible that that's in there too but also the other gospels tell the story of who jesus comes and talks to first differently um who experiences uh jesus's presence first differently like the 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 gospels are not in absolute uh, you know, conclusion about this with each other. They all kind of tell this story just slightly differently. Yeah. That's one of the most interesting things, I think, about the Bible being as foundational, as um, it, as solidified as it is now. It still isn't really a 100% detail-for-detail telling of a story from different perspectives. There's there's little variances in all yeah. of Yeah. I mean, I, I have not been to seminary, but I've heard this story from, from different people that some a kind of a classic exercise you'll do in seminary is try to harmonize the four gospels and the reason professors put their students through that is to get them to realize it's a fool's errand it's an impossible task that the stories don't line up completely there are contradictions from one gospel to the other um something i i couldn't find the source i just remember hearing this somewhere uh and i'm sure it was from 
from a non-Christian scholar, but they, they were speculating that because the Gospel of John comes later and is is like theologically different from the other Gospels and is trying to prove Christ's divinity, that they're they're saying like the reason the Synoptic Gospels don't have Thomas and this one does is because that was like part of the reason for John writing his Gospels to try to prove to people Jesus was divine. So he's like, let's throw in a story here that will address those who have doubts so that we can pacify the doubters um, who are who are trying to win over to the story of Jesus. Have you heard mm. um, that theory? Yeah, I have. I don't remember where either, but it, I mean, it kind of makes sense the way that this is kind of tucked in to the end of the book. And there's even a section like right after at 30, it says Jesus did many other things in the presence of his, his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He's just spelling it out, yeah. and John does this throughout. Right yeah, throughout his whole mm-hmm. gospel, John does this spelling it out. Like, so this is what we're supposed to take from this. Do we all understand what the meaning <laughs> of this passage is supposed to be? Uh, which is funny for somebody who then went on to write the letters that he wrote and then the revelation which are i mean the revelation especially is just out there right it's the least spelled out thing in the bible it's the least easy to understand thing yeah i mean completely um vague and obtuse in a way but at the same time not not sparing any of the details right in the book of revelation (laughs) he gets very specific about the dragon has seven heads count them seven one could one could argue too much detail because now that book is used for (laughs) everything and for things it was never supposed to be yeah because every detail is a is a hidden clue that's going to point us to the apocalypse right putting all the little puzzle pieces together and all of a sudden we have all the information that we need if the book of revelation was twice as long would we have twice as many left behind books right now oh god help us um you mentioned you mentioned seminary i i saw on um i i found you initially actually and and eventually reached out i found you initially on tiktok and uh, and i follow you on instagram and uh, i i liked your videos and you made a very cool uh filter uh that was like a denominational filter what what christian denomination that was you right that made that yeah, mm-hmm. yeah it's very popular now actually it's it's gotten some traction <laughs> which is pretty cool it blew up. yeah yeah <laughs> um but you mentioned in a video of yours that you went to bible college which is different obviously from seminary what was your experience like there with regards to like apologetics was there any approaching that kind of education there in the school that you went to yeah yeah so so bible college is basically the the undergrad version i suppose so i just got my bachelor's degree and like if i wanted to go into ministry like to be a pastor or something the traditional route would be like after bible college go to what is it, i think four years right of seminary oh, seminary okay. is kind of the phd version of a biblical studies um to summarize it but Yes. So this was, um, I, I did, I took a lot of Bible classes. I think I took one on the gospel of John. I definitely took apologetics. That was a whole class that I remember very well because a, a lot of it rubbed me the wrong way. Like I, I was a total believer at the time, but it always kind of bothered me how dismissive my professor was of non-believers. Like we would we talked a lot about the empty tomb, right? How do you explain the empty tomb? And it would say mm-hmm. like atheists 
we'll say the swoon theory or the stolen body theory and we would kind of like just describe the the atheist argument and kind of laugh it off of like oh that's so ridiculous <laughs> um which to me i always thought like is is that idea more ridiculous than saying someone was miraculously <laughs> raised from the dead uh Again, like at the time I went along with it, but it sort of it sort of bothered me. And maybe that was a seed of my unbelief that would yeah. come on later. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I was I, the only reason I brought it up is because we're talking about faith and believing and 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 some people needing proof or evidence. And the best I think the best that and I actually I wouldn't even say that this is the best that they've come up with. This is what the Christian church at large has come up with in order to combat this notion that, like, we need scientific proof of, you know, Jesus being God and, and Jesus being resurrected and, and all the miracles being performed and things. So their way of doing it was kind of coming up these with these, like, rhetorical tricks. And there are videos everywhere. You don't have to look very, very hard to find them of, of you know, pastors on college campuses trying to engage people in, in debates and things like that. And, and nine times out of ten the the person that is there you know sort of instigating these conversations instigating might not be the right word but the, the pastor that's there conducting mm -hmm. these sort of apologetic sessions with non-believers comes off looking not great right comes off looking kind of dismissive kind of condescending and uh, and ultimately even if you uh, you know even if at the end he makes a coherent point the way that he got there came off as so unlikable that it's like, who are you actually winning over with, with this kind of approach? Yeah. Yeah. The, the practice of apologetics is, it's interesting. It's something I, I feel like I've engaged a lot in cause I've, I've watched a lot of um, like debates on YouTube of like an atheist versus an apologist um, arguing whether or not God exists or, or if the evidence is there or that kind of thing. And I've heard many people say that, apologetics is basically only effective or is only meant for uh, the flock people who are already believers who are maybe struggling with their doubts it's a way to sort of pacify their questions and get them to kind of just say okay well i guess this guy's smart and he seems to have some kind of explanation so i guess i can just accept that that the bible is real that everything it says is is true because there's this apologist who has a phd from stanford or something confirming it um and that yeah apologetics is is not very well respected in the non-christian community from from what i've seen yeah yeah i mean i think that's that's probably a, a good point that it's probably meant more for people who are struggling with doubts themselves but consider themselves to be believers and are just looking for like a foothold as opposed to trying to like convince people who who are resistant to being won over uh just don't want to hear about the gospel and are refusing to understand jesus the the points that they make aren't aren't super um compelling i don't think to people that aren't already at least a little bit informed about god and about jesus um, but yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it's difficult because, you know, like I said, when, when earlier on, when I said we were, so, we are so far removed from this world that all this happened and that maintaining belief is a very difficult thing, let alone rebuilding belief, falling away from faith and coming back to it. It can feel like impossible because it's like, now that I've seen the other side, 
why why would i ever go back how could i ever go back yeah but it's almost like the mystery is maybe the more compelling argument uh rather than trying to come i i listen to a lot of uh sermons about different passages before i do episodes and in this i listen to a few sermons from largely evangelical baptist sort of communities i'm not in that community myself but i find their sermons to be a really interesting kind of stud place to start in studying Mm -hmm. because you get a, a sense of what the mainstream protestant christian church believes and most of the pastors i heard preaching on this were were talking about Jesus's resurrection as if it was just a foregone conclusion like this is this already happened like there there's enough proof out there already that we don't even have to explain this even though it's okay to have doubt but like it's really silly to have doubt that we should we should know better than to have doubt because it's already so proven if it was that proven though this wouldn't be faith right it would be fact right it just presents a it presents a really interesting really interesting conundrum and and it's like I see the the point of bringing a character like Thomas in at this stage and and bringing him in as the person who doubts who then absolutely says with certainty that Jesus is God declares Jesus as God and not just God but the Christ um Thomas but, is, is kind of the least strobel of his day right he's of <laughs> <laughs> making very compelling <laughs> movies several movies yeah he, he even went on to write a book you know that's that's controversial it didn't make <laughs> it into the canon, but... <laughs> and that's the other um, thing that i think people who aren't familiar with the gospel of thomas are doing themselves a disservice because at least if you read that you'll understand some more of the mystery behind this character even if again it's even if it's not legitimate and even if it wasn't written by Thomas or even if it has no lineage in that at all and it's really just like a bunch of Eastern sayings that they try to like cobble together to make it about Jesus or whatever. Um, The fact that this inquisitive character from the accepted Gospels is then projected onto this mysterious collection of sayings and mysteries, like that's, I mean, a kind of a far out thing. Yeah, so I, I literally just read the Gospel of Thomas for the first time today um, in preparation for this episode. I, I'd always heard of it, and I knew it had this reputation of being mysterious and controversial as, as a non-accepted gospel. Um, and then when I, when I was Googling it and realized, oh, this is actually really short, I can just like read this in one sitting. So I decided to go ahead and read it. And yeah, what a trip. Very fascinating. <laughs> yeah, it's some of it's really, really cool. Uh, honestly, yeah. I um I kind of wish that it hadn't been struck so much, you know, from from canon because there's definitely parts of it that jive completely with who we see Jesus to be in the gospel. Yeah, and anyone who's listening who was like who like me was curious about it but just never got around to reading it, I would encourage you to read it. Just like I said, it's it's pretty short and um easy to read very digestible it's basically just jesus quotes like almost like random and out of context mm-hmm. was, was my sense of it it kind of it kind of reminded me of the book of proverbs in the sense of it's just isolated quotes right each each verse is a new just saying of jesus and some of them are just directly pulled from other the gospels that we know from the bible and so like i recognize those sayings and then some of them are very strange and some seem out of character and 
have have just very strange implications. Yeah, and and Jesus comes off as very, um, like even more difficult to please and kind of confrontational, than even mm-hmm. more so in in the Gospel of Thomas than he does in the in the uh, canonical gospels. I've actually heard a theory that Mark, originally the gospel of Mark was written a lot in the style of, you know, similarly in the style of the gospel of Thomas, where it was just kind of a bunch of different things, phrases, a little stories that they then had mm. to piece together to make a larger story. I, I don't know where that theory came from, but yeah. it, it's believable, right? Because the way that all the, even the way that all this stuff was written down, we didn't have chapter numbers. We didn't have verse numbers. None of this stuff was written out like a book. It was, it was on scrolls. It was on, you know, this was written without punctuation or in some cases without the same organizational structure that we have it. It's uh, it's not the way that we know the Bible to be now, which makes the inerrant, uh, biblical inerrantists look I think silly uh, mm-hmm. to to look at the Bible as we have it today and say this is the decisive, definitive, complete Word of God, even though it took us this long to get here with it, and we've changed the structure and we've changed the order, and and it's not in chronological order, and and there's a bunch of other things that we've changed about it. Yeah. Do Do you have an understanding of of why specifically um, the Gospel of Thomas was not included ultimately, or? Any theories on that? The only the only explanation that I've heard of really for any of these Gnostic Gospels or any of these sort of additional stories, I think I brought up like Peter and the Pearl Seller and a, and a few other um, stories in, in previous episodes, is basically they just determined that they were not authentic. And not authentic, mm-hmm. obviously, is confusing too because we don't really have the chronological dating for a lot of these books. Um it's pretty widely accepted that the Gospels that we have, while they may have been initiated or um, brought to bear like by the people that they're named after, they probably weren't actually mm-hmm. written by those people, that maybe they were just stories that those people told. Um, so how one would then look at something like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Judas or any of the other odd Gospels that we have that they sort of ousted out of Scripture— um, and say that's not authentic, and here's how we know it wasn't written by Thomas. What about that disqualifies it as a piece of scripture? If if we know what we know about the other, I mean, we used to think that Paul wrote Hebrews, and nobody thinks that anymore. Yeah the the canonization is is such an interesting thing, right? It, again, it was something that when I was a younger Christian, I just didn't question it, right? I re- I considered whoever. <laughs> whoever the Council of Nicaea, the people, room full of people who made the decision of what's in the canon, I suppose they must have been God-breathed, God-inspired also in their selection of which books they determined to be God-breathed and God-inspired. <laughs> um, and and when, I, uh, when I got a little bit older and started to question those things, that, that was a large lingering thing that gave me pause of... Uh-huh. You know, even even if these books are divinely inspired, how do I know that the people who chose and edited and decided which books make it into the final collection, how do I know that they made the right decision, right? Or that they didn't have some sort of ulterior motive. That was one thing that I always thought about, yeah. too, when I was 
mm-hmm. when I was an absolute atheist and I determined there was no value in, in scripture or faith at all was because I was like, well, this is a book written by men and therefore men are men are bad and evil and, and we do all kinds of terrible things in the world. Human beings are flawed and and as a result, like anything that that was codified and 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 normalized and made into a formal uh, a formal book th- by guys being dudes then we know that this is not something that that like we should really put any stock in but that is i think it's sort of a different side of uh reductive view of it you know it's um <laughs> We got kind of far afield from what we were talking about here. Where, where, <laughs> where were we in yeah. the actual scripture? Oh, in the scriptures? Oh, sure. Oh, I think we were at 20. Yeah. We, yeah, we, we were at 26. 25? There was something that, um, there was something that, uh, yeah, one other thing I just wanted to mention about the people that brought the whole, uh, the, the formalized and, and canonized the Bible as we know it. I have no uh no no doubt that these people knew more about the origins and the, the truth behind these scriptures than I do or I probably ever will this is not me saying yeah. I know better but that we don't have like a clear list of here's this book for a long time people read it and thought it to be part of the holy scriptures we determined after this research or after we found out this or that it was written by this we determined that it is not something that we can rely on and therefore we're removing it we have no such like neat neat writing about that we have even points of something like the book of enoch which is referenced in the canonical scripture that was removed from canon Mm -hmm. i mean that that we see it referenced as though it is something that the people who then wrote the things that we are to understand as authentic thought was authentic when they wrote the things that they wrote and then now we're to believe that that is then not authentic. It's a very it's a conundrum, right? It's a difficult thing. Oh, man. that I didn't even think of that. But wouldn't that be wonderful if we had full transparency and data from, from the powers that be that created the canon? And they were able to share um, their thought process, their arguments for and against canonization with each book. And they could crunch the numbers and say okay so we're 80 percent sure that the gospel <laughs> of mark is authentic and we're only 60 percent sure that the gospel of john and <laughs> thomas was we were only we could only come to down to 40 percent, so that was a bridge too far so we got rid of that one that would be incredible it would be and and i think that it wouldn't completely do away with this idea that there were ulterior motives from the people that canonized scripture it wouldn't do away mm-hmm. with it we might find out a few things about why they chose what they chose but i think it would it would put to bed some of the rumors especially some of like the weird masonic uh apocalyptic uh different crazy q anon theories that we have about uh, new world order and catholicism and stuff like this all being kind of wrapped into the bible as it stands mm-hmm. for us today like it would put some of that to bed which i think would be good we may not know all the answers but if we just had a little bit more info maybe someday someone will find it it's out there i'm sure it is um <laughs> yeah they're, they're charts and graphs you mean they're yeah. they're stuck Excel in a manuscript and, <laughs> in a cave somewhere in yeah. ancient jerusalem yeah somebody's gonna yeah, find no a doubt. hard drive it's gonna be underwater <laughs> um anyway um so 
Verse 26. So we know, I, I wanted to point this out because it was something that I highlighted in here. We know that numbers are important, uh, more important, I think, in the Old Testament to the numbers that they use seem very intentional. Mm-hmm. They don't always feel historical, but they feel very intentional the way that numbers are used. Yeah. And we see it a little bit in the New Testament, right? We see Jesus being in the desert for 40 days, and, and we see, you know, three as a, as a repeated figure. And of course, uh, we won't even get into Revelation and how they use numbers in Revelation, but yeah. um, d- twelve disciples, yeah, being, deified numbers like seven, and, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So we see all that here, but here is a use of a number that I couldn't really come up with an explanation for. After eight days, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. So this is after they had the conversation with Thomas in the first place. Thomas said, "There's no way I'm going to believe it unless I put my hands in Jesus's open wound." Like, totally gross, dude. Um, eight days mm. go by. They don't want to say anything, Thomas. Eight days go by, and then they <laughs> they get back together with him. And uh, and the significance of eight days, did anything pop into your head for why they might have chosen eight days? Like, was that just a literal, the amount of days that went by? Or could there have been some significance to that? Boy, I mean, just total speculation here. But I, if I wanted to make the argument, I could say that you know, maybe seven days is a reasonable amount of time to wait, right? Like give it a week. And of course, seven is this holy number that has Mm -hmm. spiritual significance. Yeah. And so the idea that it's seven plus one, you could say that um, Thomas has been waiting an unacceptable amount of time, right? If it's too much time to have passed, um, without the evidence and then jesus comes in at the last minute and even defies the the undefiable odds of still proving that the resurrection is real after i like that i'm I'm just i'm just making this up (laughs) no that's i couldn't come up with anything so that's better than than what i could come up with uh the other detail in this verse that i thought was notable and interesting was in in the section before this there was a mention of the um of the apostles meeting or the disciples meeting in behind closed doors because they were worried about what might happen if people mm-hmm. found out about Jesus coming back and and the early church being under you know persecution just from the get go basically um this detail of the doors are shut and Jesus came the doors being closed and stood in the midst and said peace to you were you imagining this like he just appeared out of thin air I, I was, though I wonder if that's because I've seen this scene in movies as a kid, <laughs> and it seems yeah. like he normally kind of teleports in or very gracefully crossfades in in a beam of light or something. But yeah, th- that was something that I, I always noticed that was an interesting detail in the Gospels. They talk about Jesus passing through locked doors which I always thought, like, I mean, of all the miracles of Jesus, that's not the most impressive one, right? <laughs> it kind of I mean, it it's feels not, like it's a parlor not, trick or something, right? Yeah, this, this. it's not nothing, but, right, I mean, if, if someone was able to pick a lock in 2022, I wouldn't think he was the Messiah, exactly. And, and by um, that logic, why would the stone be pulled aside on the grave? And why would they know that yeah. the tomb was empty? Why wouldn't Jesus just appear? Uh, right, right. <laughs> but that is a good question, like, in... Yeah, in your mind's eye, do you picture it as him, him like phasing through the door? Do you picture it as the door is locked, but he's miraculously able to unlock it and just opens it and walks through? Or do you picture him kind of teleporting in? 
Yeah. Yeah, I I imagine them sitting at a, at like a round table, kind of like praying or discussing what's going on, and then like mm-hmm. a cloud of mystery, Jesus appears like over the table that they're sitting at. Although physically, I, you know, I don't I don't know how. It's kind of hard to picture now that I'm thinking about it. Yeah. I guess a nice subtle way to do it would just be like he they look one direction they look back and suddenly he's there right he's like there. without all the fireworks of teleportation if sure. he's just mysteriously appears when I mean that's very Jesus to, out no of frills yeah yeah we're not gonna tell anybody about this don't go being all showy I'm just gonna it's be like, there yeah it's like when when Batman talks to Commissioner Gordon right and then. <laughs> Commissioner Gordon looks looks the other way for just a second, and then when he looks back, Batman's gone. It's like that, but in reverse. I'm certain that's where they got that idea from in Batman. <laughs> Jesus wandering around post-resurrection. Yeah. Uh, he's a superhero, I guess. Um, okay, so then let's, uh, yeah, let's get through this next, um, next couple of verses here. Um, Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst saying, peace to you. And at verse 27, then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. So Jesus is like challenging him. Like, well, you said this is what you, you said this is what you wanted. So go ahead. Mm. Kind of weird, right? Yeah. Yeah. Feels almost passive aggressive in a way <laughs> right of saying like now i'm gonna rub your nose in it right like here i am <laughs> knock yourself out so is that is that how you take it so yeah it's like what's up then come on here look mm-hmm. yeah but i mean it's a it's fair right it, but you mentioned earlier too that like how do we even know that jesus still had the wounds and why would Thomas think that the wounds were even still there if Jesus was raised from the dead? Wouldn't he be healed? Yeah, why not? Why not uh, be healed, right? Yeah. But which it, I know that's that's sort of a theologically um, significant thing, right? The fact that even though he's raised from the dead, he still has the wounds. Yeah, and, that like, he carried the, the wounds with him, and the yeah, the wounds like, are are like uh, there is a huge reverence for those wounds, especially in Catholic culture. There's entire chaplets and and rosaries about praying to the wounds and what each wound signifies or what it could mean and yeah of course the the phenomenon of stigmata and um Mm. and yeah what i mean what would the purpose be of a resurrect this is an impossible again here's another impossible question if you don't mind indulging me what is the purpose of a resurrected christ of the god man who who's raised from the dead what is the purpose of him still being wounded when he comes back is it that his physical form isn't like completed yet that he's not fully raised back into heaven once he's in heaven the wounds go away and he's not wounded anymore or are the wounds with him forever as like a sign of his time with humanity or what what do you think i i feel like i've heard it preached at least once at some point in my upbringing that the wounds are with him forever right like when we see jesus in heaven he'll still have the wounds and that again that that's theologically significant um it is a good question though right when if the whole point is to say that he broke the curse of death he defeated death by by raising from the dead but he didn't defeat like pain and suffering completely i guess mm. is a, a way you could interpret that or or the fact that he still has those um those marks 
as a reminder of his sacrifice, which which makes it seem like the wounds are more for us than they are for Jesus, of course, because we're supposed to remember his suffering and remember his bloodshed when we take communion and things like that. Yeah, like uh, if we're going along with the passive aggressive tone of that statement, like it's <laughs> like when we get up to heaven, Jesus is going to be like pointing at his wounds, being like, remember this? Yeah. Remember, remember when this? you guys did See this to this? me? <laughs> you want to touch it? Do you want to touch it? Right. It's like, <laughs> it's like if, if you're, I don't know, if, if your brother pushes you off the deck when you're a kid, <laughs> every time you see him, you have to point to that scar that, that he still has. Still I forgive this you. Other people might mm-hmm. not, but I forgive you. I'm the one that does the forgiving here. Uh, I don't know if I should be laughing at this. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's that's not okay. You can't uh, laugh. That's it. That's my. There's my. There's my big heresy. Everybody, sorry. Um, this week's heresy. <laughs> well, so I think kind of an unanswered question because the text doesn't spell it out is whether or not Thomas actually touches the wounds or not. Right? Like you asked, like why does Jesus yeah. tell him to instruct him to? But it goes right from the passage itself in verse twenty-seven. Goes from Jesus saying, "Go ahead and touch." to 28 thomas says my lord and my god Mm -hmm. so it's you have to read between the lines does he touch the wounds and then say my lord my god or is he convinced just at the sight of jesus and he doesn't need to touch the wounds that was my last note actually that i had for this passage was because they do skip over that detail and and when earlier on in 20 where mary magdalene sees jesus she turns to him. This is at um, sort of midway through uh, verse 16. She turns to him and says, Rabbi, which is to say, teacher, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and to your God. So like Jesus is avoidant of physical contact when he meets Mary. Right. Yeah. Jesus says, don't touch me. Right. Or don't cling to me. And yet. Yeah. In in Thomas's de- in the face of Thomas's doubt, when Mary is like trying to embrace him because she believes and she's so happy that he's back and she's so thrilled, he's like, no, 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 no don't do that. But then when when Thomas faces Jesus and saying, I don't really believe this, or I have trouble believing this, Jesus is saying, well, come on, then just like dig your hand inside, which is like maybe. I have trouble reconciling those two details because like why wouldn't Jesus accept the physical? He doesn't really seem like a real physically affectionate guy, I guess. Maybe that's it. Although that seems like a little reductive. But hmm. um, but then he is so welcoming. I, yeah, he's so like welcoming to have Thomas say like you're here, let me prove it. That's interesting. I I didn't think of Jesus as being not physically affectionate because isn't there a passage about like the disciples laying at his chest or something like that? Just one of them. And, Just yeah, John. Okay. Yeah. Just John. Okay. Just John. Yeah. <laughs> Although, yeah, I mean, I, th- I don't think he's like withholding, but he just doesn't mm-hmm. seem to be as as like loving and um, and welcoming and forgiving. And like he just seems like a really groovy and sweet guy. He just doesn't mm-hmm. seem to be all that sentimental with his like friendships and the way he talks about family and uh, and, and sort of saying, like, deny your family, like come come to, to, oh, yeah, to God, definitely. things like that. Like he's he's not precious about it, which I find to be very weird. Yeah, no, no respect for for family. Like you don't even have time to bury your dead father, things yeah. like that. Um, that's I mean, this is a total, total sidebar. But that's something that 
um, I've always wondered about like why why is Christian culture, I mean, like evangelical communities, so um, obsessed with family values, the family unit, get married, have kids, raise a family, when Jesus seems to be basically the opposite of that messaging, mm-hmm. <laughs> saying like forget your family, just sell your stuff and hit the road. It's yeah. <laughs> a very good point I, because sustaining a church long term requires people to have kids that also get involved with the church. I've been to a lot of churches in Portland where everyone is over the age of sixty, and it's it's very um, it's interesting. It's interesting, but yeah, that's a that's a super good point. How did we get here? Yeah. How did the church? The Apostle get here? Paul also basically says, like, getting married is, is like a waste of time that's only for the weak. Yes. Like, <laughs> I wish everyone was like me. It was just single so they could be full time missionaries. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you think that the world is going to end like very soon, I could mm-hmm. imagine mar- marriage feels a little frivolous. Yeah. And he, he even says, like, well, if, if this is going to make you not be so sinful and like do, you know, promiscuous things or whatever exercise your sin then sure go ahead do it but go ahead and do it kind of a waste of time as far as i'm concerned that's that's what paul's hey i'm not saying this this is what paul's once again yeah uh sorry sorry for sidetracking us so much no no this is uh this has been an awesome conversation i just just noticed that we're over an hour i don't want to um i don't want to miss anything before we have to wrap up Were, were there any other details that you wanted to to touch on uh, we t- we talked about the touching or the no touching i don't know that there's a way to neatly conclude whether or not thomas did in fact touch the the wounds yeah um, i just wanted to to mention like the most famous painting probably is the caravaggio painting of of thomas like sticking his finger pretty deep in there oh the so wound. caravaggio so made his decision <laughs> Yeah. Well, and of course, like we've seen other other pieces of art where he touches the wound, which, of course, that's if you're going to convey that story, that's that's the way you do it. Right. If you just have one image to do it with. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. No, no theories. I you know, I think that that's that's part of the charm and the the specialness of the Bible is the fact that it is so light on details, like maddeningly light on details. Sometimes you. (laughs) It's like you wish I wish I could know like what did you mean by that? But in the Bible's like moving on next door. Yes, it's time to go. We're gonna go to the next town. And that's yeah. I mean, that's where um where Jesus says here, because you have seen, you believe. He doesn't say because you touched those wounds now you believe. Mm, I think right. more of what he's saying is that you've been with me this whole time, right? You believe in me. You wouldn't even have a basis for belief if you hadn't been with me all along. Now, the people that are going to follow, and and most of the purpose of this time after Jesus is resurrected, launching the church, getting getting the um, getting the disciples ready to go and and be out in the world and to spread the gospel, is like preparing them to heart you know solidify their faith so that they can go out and convince people who have absolutely no context for Jesus whatsoever. They might have heard his name once. Right, there might be some story floating around their town about this guy who who raised from the dead, but nobody else knows this much about me. So you're going to have to do a really good job at convincing these people because they and and it will be harder for them to believe. But if they can, they will be blessed or they'll be happy, depending on the trend, you know, the translation you want to use. So I guess you know my I guess my final question is why why can't we get physical evidence, right? Like if Jesus can appear to Thomas and he can appear 
to Saul yeah. on the road to Damascus. Why, why not just appear to people who want to believe and are asking for a sign? Like, why hold back? Do you have God, a theory on that? Because anyone that believes, we have to think that God is capable of it, right? We have to think that right. God is able to do this. I don't if have. If you a believe theory. in omnipotence, you can't say he's too busy. He can't pencil you in, right? Right. It's not about yeah. God's like away on business doing something else, right? This is like, mm-hmm. this is like. Uh, I don't have an answer for that, and I don't. I've never been satisfied by it. To be honest, it's one of the things I think that hangs up my faith more than anything. It's something that I pray about all the time because it's like, I'm not. And it's, and it's bad, right? In the eyes of in the church, I think, in general, you're not really supposed to pray like that. Um, even in the Old Testament, God is very resistant, resistant to people who, uh, who want proof or who want to put God to the test, right? We're not really supposed to do that. But Well, I think of the story of um, Elijah with the prophets of Baal, right, where mm. it seems like God is happy to prove himself, right, put on a big spectacle, to prove that he is real and that Baal is not, at least in that story. And there are cases, lots and lots of cases in Scripture where God mm-hmm. makes God's self known to people, and and Jesus proves that that he is Jesus or that he is the Christ to to people throughout the Gospels. Mm-hmm. Why did it seem like that activity stops? The only answer I really have, and it's not a satisfying one, so I'll just preface it with that: is is that good start if. <laughs> If God does appear to people today, most of the time we hear someone say, God came to me and spoke with me and put something, or, or that, that phrase that evangelicals especially like to use, God put something on my heart, um, mm-hmm. that when God speaks to people today, they are immediately, almost universally, immediately um, kind of cast off as like kooks. That we can't possibly believe, even within the church, there are people who think this way, that if you actually believe that you talked to God and that God appeared to you and said something to you, there must be something wrong with you mentally. So I wouldn't say that this is actually happening to those people, because there's no way to prove it. And a lot of the time, Mm -hmm. people who say that are saying crazy shit, stuff that's like Mm -hmm. not, not backed up by anything in scripture or in church history or or hasn't ever it's totally unprecedented or it's totally hateful and it's gross and it's ugly so you know i'm sure that there are a lot of people who who are totally deluded and faking that entirely but there there does seem to me at least to be a possibility that some of those people that have seen god or say that they have seen god or witnessed the presence of god have actually done it now will we ever have physical proof of that no and and that's the hardest thing because we're not going to find the ark, right? The, any mm-hmm. any anytime you see someone saying, "Oh, we have Jesus's robe," oh, these TikTok videos, God, these TikTok <laughs> videos. Of, I should just get off the platform. I fully know this, but I'm trying to promote the show and I'm trying to get it out there and stuff. So I'm posting clips and anyway, these TikTok videos of people finding the sandals that Jesus wore, or the or the the robe that he wore, or you know the pieces of the cross that people used to sell and in yeah. ma- in magazines it's just it's not just like bad from a theological moral standpoint but it's like sinister and kind of evil to like prey on people's desire for proof that god is real when most people are seeking god for solace and for like strength 
and for you know motivation to stay alive and to to uh, overcome and to recover from things and that people still prey on them in their need is just it sucks it really yeah. sucks yeah yeah i mean i've been to a lot of like ancient churches in um in europe in the middle east where it's like we have a bone fragment of john the baptist on display here and the, there's a whole shrine around it right and yeah. it seems yeah kind of kind of cheesy and gimmicky at best and idolatrous at worst to <laughs> to make such a spectacle of, of this you know supposed archaeological find yeah that most of those you know most archaeologists most people who are in that science field will never verify anything like that and oftentimes have proof to to show the opposite of what the claim is about a certain find it's um it's really tough yeah and i think it's why a lot of people have either walked away from faith entirely or why a lot of people won't even begin to approach it because they need something tangible and who could blame them tangible like like thomas or even spiritual i would say like like saul um, yeah saul turning to paul because uh i don't i know this is somewhat debated too of whether jesus appeared to him physically or i've always pictured as being more of a spiritual uh apparition right like a a light from heaven Mm -hmm. um but but it being not just this vague feeling this you know sense of of religious awe you get while listening to worship music, but it being a specific vision with a specific voice, specific message, and saying, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, right? Rather yeah. than just being a vague feeling. Yeah. Um, and that's why a lot of people are secessionists, right? That's why a lot of people think that the Holy Spirit just doesn't act in that way anymore. And that hmm. if we're in a difficult time in the church now because that's just not how God works anymore, which is bringing up all kinds of other challenging notions of okay well but why and does this mean like we're nearing the end or does this mean like we're even further from the end or or you know where where does that sit us in the in the scope of the coming of the kingdom i don't know sure uh this was an awesome conversation thank you so much for coming i was just about to say sorry for ending it on such a bummer no No, that's that's actually that's normal. I think that's bar for the course for us. You, you, we, we cycle through a bunch of really awesome scripture or interesting passages and bring up all kinds of theories. Mm-hmm. And at the end, we go, I don't have an answer. Uh, I guess I just have to either keep thinking how I'm thinking or let this inform my thinking going forward. And and uh, yeah, but I appreciate you taking the time and and uh, and talking with me about this and. Um, do you have anything you want to plug for folks? Um, any social media projects or website? I know you have a website. You do some work, digital um, graphic design stuff. Yeah, sure. Yep. I have a website, jeffkane.com. That's like my portfolio. Yeah, I do illustration, graphic design, animation, that kind of thing. So, yeah, if you're interested in that kind of thing, uh, hit it up. You know, mm-hmm. Jeff's very talented, so everyone should check him out. This week's poem is by Claudia Rankin. Don't say I if it means so little. Holds the little forming no one. You are not sick, you're injured. You ache for the rest of life. How to care for the injured body. The kind of body that can't hold the content that is living. And where is the safest place when that place must be some place other than in the body? 
Even now your voice entangles this mouth whose words are here as pulse, strumming, shut out, shut in, shut up. You cannot say, a body translates, it's you, you there, hey you, even as it loses the location of its mouth. Thanks, everybody. I'm not sure. Could you ask me later? I just need to lay here till these feelings disappear. I know you are in such a hurry, but I'm feeling worried that there's nothing left of me. There's a dark wind coming in, and it might just take me in. Something I don't